You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I'm going to tell you something right now that might come to you as a surprise, but I'm going to tell you that it is a certain and documented fact. It's this. The most frequently and heavily persecuted people on the planet are Christians. No group of people faces more discrimination, oppression, even violent opposition than the followers of Jesus Christ. Today, that is a fact. In 2019, the British Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, and the UK government commissioned a study on the global persecution of Christians. And this is a quote from their conclusion, their findings in the study. Quote, it is estimated that one-third of the world's population suffers from religious persecution in some form, with Christians being the most persecuted group, end quote. One-third of the world persecuted for their religious beliefs. Their findings were that 80% of those people who are persecuted for their religious beliefs are Christians. In 2016, the Pew Research Group identified 144 countries in the world where Christians are being targeted. That was, uh, that was 19 more countries than when they did the same study the year before. In 2013, Professor Thomas Schurmacher from the International Society on Human Rights said that the estimated the number of Christians killed every year because of their faith in Christ is between seven and 8,000 people. And then he acknowledged that's likely a conservative estimate. Seven to 8,000 people killed for their faith in Christ every year. In 2010, the column in the Toronto Sun by columnist Ron Selig said this, quote, virtually every human rights group and Western government agency that monitors the plight of Christians worldwide arrives at more or less the same conclusion. It's this, between 200 million and 230 million of them face daily threats of murder, beating, imprisonment, and torture, and a further 350 to 400 million encounter discrimination in areas such as jobs and housing, end quote. The persecution of Christians is a reality, a present reality. It's, it's a fact. It's not just a preacher up there, up here, trying to make a case about something that may or may not be. It's real. And it's not just out there. It's, it's also people we know. I have a friend who converted to Christ and after doing so was outrightly and clearly disowned by his parents. In fact, the last words his father ever spoke to him were blatant, cutting words of disowning. I know a pastor who told the story of a woman he met whose mother had died, but because of her faith in Christ, the family forbade her from attending the funeral. Same pastor told the story of a, another woman who was, who was marrying 
a believer, so a Christian woman marrying a believer, but coming from her family, she had Jewish parents, and they refused to attend the wedding because it would be a Christian wedding. Now, now these things are, uh, these, I mean, compared to Christians who are beheaded, or Christians historically who've been burned at the stake, or Christians who are beaten and tortured, we, we might say that, I mean, it's not the same as that, but, but I will say that even these family troubles and social pressures, are they're painful. They're painful. My question is for you, when it comes to a persecuted church, what do we say? What do we say to persecuted believers? And of course, I ask that question, fully aware of this fact, that persecution is but one form of suffering. If you love and follow Jesus, you may indeed be persecuted. If you haven't already, it would seem that the likelihood is that you will. But of course, in our life for Christ, this is only one kind of suffering. There's many kinds of sufferings that a Christian, a follower of Jesus, will face. What do you say? What do you say to the Christian who's suffering? The answer, I would say, is that you say to them what Jesus said to the suffering church in Smyrna. The Christians in Smyrna 2,000 years ago were a suffering people. They suffered persecution. And when we read in the Bible Jesus' words for them, it, it gives to us, I think, a, a kind of perspective on our own sorrows, but it also equips us to minister to others who are going through hard times. And really, there, when you think about it, every single one of us here will find ourselves in one of those two places, or both at the same time. Suffering and going through difficulties, or knowing and loving another believer who's themselves going through difficulties. One or the other, or perhaps both. Maybe there's somebody on your mind this morning who is, who is themselves being persecuted in some way, maybe socially, maybe some family pain, maybe some, a bit of persecution in their, in their academic pursuits or in work. Perhaps, though, on your mind this morning is someone else who's grieving, or who suffered a different kind of loss, or facing a health crisis, or is just dealing with a broken heart, or, or a kind of pain that, don't, who knows when it will end, maybe no end in sight. You think of those people, and my question for you is, what do you say to them? You say to them what we see Jesus saying to suffering Christians in Smyrna. And I want you to see what it is he said. It's in Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And uh, if you've got a Bible with you, please go ahead and turn there. If you don't have one with you, there should be a Bible. If you just reach out to the back of the pew in front of you and pull out that Bible, I'll save you some time. It's page 966. I think, 965 or 966. You find 966, and you're going to be in the vicinity, okay, in that pew Bible, or powered up in your phone. That's maybe the easiest way. But I want you to get it open in front of you so you can see I'm not making this up. And as you follow along, you can be seeing for yourself what it is that Jesus says to believers who are suffering. Now, we're in a teaching series in Revelation 2 and 3. We're calling the series Seven Letters Every Church Needs to Read. And we're calling it that because Revelation 2 and 3 consists of seven letters from Jesus to seven real historical churches, each had their own challenges, but Christ gave these letters, he dictated them, as it were, to John the Apostle, 
who then was to deliver them to have them read in these churches. Now, a week ago, we read the first one. The first letter was to the church at Ephesus. And as I understand it, it was sort of the the mother church. It was the, the planting church of the others. And you recall there, if you're with us, that Jesus addressed them. Well, he had lots of good things to say about them. But he also called them out on the problem they were having of diminished love. So that was his message to them. But now when he comes to Smyrna, a neighboring city that was uh, in its day an impressive city, it was a city busy with trade, uh, it was the, had the best port in those days on the Aegean Sea, today it's known as the city of Izmir. So it's a, it's, it's a real city, you look up Google Maps or whatever, Izmir, Turkey, um, it's a real place. In those days, in this busy, impressive city, the Christians were suffering suffering persecution. And we'll read a little bit about it here in our text. But what we find here is not just a message for Smyrna, but also for you and me. Because we see by example the Lord ministering to suffering saints, and at the same time, when we get to the end of our passage, we'll see that Jesus has in mind not just those people then, but us now, all believers, all churches, to hear what he has to say. Well, let's look and see what he has to say. Enough of me. Let's hear what Jesus has to say. Revelation 2 and verse 8. He says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Now, just, just remember that word angel there means messenger. Oftentimes in the New Testament, an angel is it's an angelic being. But in this case, as we understand it, It seems more likely that the angel of the church in Smyrna refers to the pastor, the preacher, the teacher in that local church, the messenger who will convey this message to the church. So, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. So it's going to be for a time here. There's persecution. There's more trouble coming and it's going to be for a time. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear. See what I mean? It's not just for them then. It's for anybody listening. Anybody who loves and follows Jesus. Are you listening to him? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's for us. Notice how he closes this message. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, a conqueror in the New Testament is not somebody who rises up and achieves a victory by their own might and and power. No, a conqueror is one who trusts in the one who secures the victory for us, namely Jesus. And it's in him we conquer. Well, this is quite a message, isn't it, that Jesus has? It's a short passage. But a very important message where Jesus addresses suffering saints. What do you say to the suffering Christian? How do you help them? How do you minister to them? Well, look and see what Jesus says. Now remember, each of these letters begins with a portrait of Jesus or a presentation of Jesus where 
the Lord Jesus reveals something about himself that's true that specially applies to the situation, to the circumstance in the church that he's addressing. In this case, the suffering church, Jesus reveals two things about himself. First, notice that he calls himself the first and the last. Did you see that in verse 8? Look at verse 8 again, the middle of that verse. The words of the first and the last. So talking about himself, Jesus calls himself the first and the last. Now, what, what does this mean? Well, if you know your Old Testament really well, that phrase, will, that title will sound really familiar. Because when you read the Old Testament, there are times in which we find God referring to himself as the first and the last. And just as a quick aside, the more you understand, the more you learn the Old Testament, the better you will understand Revelation. There's lots and lots of pictures and symbols used in Revelation that have their, their root, their origin back in the Old Testament. And this is one of those examples where Jesus refers to himself as the first and the last. I think of a passage like in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 48 where God calls himself the first. He says, he told the nation of Israel, I am the first and the last. Now here Jesus calls himself that identifying himself with God, that he is this divine person. And notice he, that the title says that he's the first and the last. Before there was anything, he was. And long after this day, long after history has been consummated, he will be. He is the first and the last. It speaks to his eternal character. And being eternal before all things, he is also above all things speaks of his sovereignty, his, his rule over everything. Now think about it. We've got some suffering Christians, and the first thing Jesus tells them about himself is that he's the first and the last. I was here long before you came along, and I'll be here long after these troubles are past you. I am greater than it all. I am over it all, Jesus is telling them. I am the sovereign one. I am fully in charge of everything. You can count on it. And you may have questions, you may wonder about why things are happening, and you, you may or may not be able to piece some of these things together, but here's the thing you do need to know, is that I'm bigger than it all. I'm greater than it all. And something else he shows, the second thing he shows about himself, is look what he did. He says, the words of the first and the last, who, notice, who died and came to life. Now that's a pretty impressive feat, wouldn't you say? who died and came to life. Jesus is like, I'm the first and the last, and when I entered into history, I stared down, I experienced, I faced the biggest, biggest problem that people will ever have, death. And you know what I did with it? I conquered it. Yeah, they put me in the grave, and then I rose up from the grave. I Jesus is like, I defeated your greatest foe. Now think about this. You're a suffering Christian. And you're facing maybe a multitude of problems. But we can all agree that probably the biggest problem that human beings face is the problem of death. Like, you know, life ending is up there with issues that we have to contend with. And Jesus says, that's nothing to me. I've been there and I conquered it. What is Jesus doing here? He's reminding these suffering Christians of the greatness of their Savior and Lord. And loved ones, that's what you do for someone who's hurting, a believer who's hurting. You start here. 
You give them an exalted view of Jesus. Are you hurting this morning? You know what you need? What you really need? Is an exalted view of your Savior. To see with the eyes of your heart that he is great. And he is mighty. And he is victorious. Now you can know all that. And your problems haven't gone away. But they sure look different. When your focus and confidence is in one who can conquer the worst of your problems. Think about it this way. When you think about suffering people in the Bible, the person that comes to my mind, and probably to yours too, is, is Job. Like when you read the Old Testament book of Job, you meet someone who knew all about pain and sorrow and hardship. I mean, he, he lost everything that we would count precious. He, he lost his children. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. I mean, those are, those are some massive losses. For some of us, those, that's greatest fears categories. And he went through it all. But what, what happened for Job, the peace that he found, the, the victory that he found, the encouragement that he found, did not come from being able to make sense of why it was all happening. I mean, that's often what we find ourselves asking is when it's hard is, is why. And it's understandable. As, as people, we intuitively feel like if we could piece it together and find compelling reasons for this suffering, then it would somehow feel better. But the thing is that even if you did, you're not going to necessarily feel better. And oftentimes there is no knowing. And in Job's experience, he was suffering. And as the reader, you, when you read the book of Job, you see what's happened. It was a satanic attack on his life. But Job didn't see that. He's struggling. And where it all turned for him was never, ever getting to piece it all together. That didn't come in the book of Job. Where it turned for him was when God showed up and showed himself great. Job had an encounter with the greatness of God, and that was the turning point in his misery. His children were still gone. He'd still been through what he'd been through. But he had an encounter with God and was reminded about the greatness of God. And he found hope. He found comfort. found encouragement. And you will too, brother, sister. When you look to Jesus... What Jesus says here when he calls himself the first and the last, the one who's died in his life, he's telling him, listen, I have power over all things. I'm bigger than your biggest pain. Even the worst case scenario, namely death, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the winner through and through, and if you are in me, you win too. You may feel like you're losing today. It may look to everybody around you like you're emphatically losing today, but you trust me and you will see the victory is sure. That's what he's saying. Think of the beauty of this. Think of what this can do for your own soul. It's like the song, you know, we used to sing when I was in Sunday school, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. You know that one? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What's that song talking about? It's talking about having an exalted view of Christ. Loved ones, that's what people need. They don't need explanations. Explanations won't suffice. They don't need answers. There's often no answers to be found. 
What your brother and sister in Jesus needs is Jesus. I find sometimes instead of talking, I just prefer singing, just like I did now. And to go to the bedside and just sing praises unto God, to worship the Lord. Because he's the only one that can come and do anything of meaning or value. Get them an exalted view of Jesus. Say, you're suffering today? Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look to him. That's not just church talk. It's how Jesus begins here. The first and the last who died and who came to life. That's what they need. And Jesus begins there. Now, he goes on to tell them, listen, I understand what you're going through. He, he describes it, doesn't he? He starts with an exalted view of himself, reminds them something of who he is, but then also he gets down into the muck and the mire. He, he gets down into their tears and says, I know your tribulation. You see that verse 9? I know your tribulation. Some of you need to underline that verse. Jesus says to you, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Maybe you need to underline that. But you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. He says, I know your tribulation. That word tribulation can be rendered, it means pressure, like a crushing pressure. Like going through grief or loss or sorrows or difficulties, wherein it just feels overwhelming. And it's difficult. And there's like, there's no seeming getting out from underneath it. Jesus says, that's what you're going through, and I know about it. I know your tribulation. He says, I know your poverty. The, the Smyrna church consisted of poorer people. Many of them were slaves, and those who weren't slaves likely were going to become slaves because under the persecution they were suffering, they were losing businesses, properties, and other assets, all because of Jesus. He says, I know your poverty. Now imagine you're the Smyrna church, right? And here you are struggling and suffering. And what's the question we so often ask in the midst of it? Sometimes it's why. And then sometimes we ask, Lord, where are you? Don't you see what's going on here? Don't you see? And Jesus is like, yes, I do see. I do see. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. There's people who are slandering you. I mean, and isn't this sometimes the worst kind of suffering? Like, Punch me in the face, break my nose, but don't malign me. But they're enduring that. And there was, of course, Jesus rooted back into satanic attack. They were facing that. That was what was going on. Under tribulation, poor, slandered, satanic attack. What is Jesus doing here? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's demonstrating to them that he knows and this is the second thing that he shows us here. How, how do you help a suffering saint? Well, you start by giving them an exalted view of Christ. But then second, you remind them that the Lord knows. He knows. He knows all about it. He sees the tears that you cry. He knows the inner anguish that you feel that nobody else gets. He gets it. And he knows it in more than one sense. He knows the fact of it because he knows all things. After all, when you are the first and the last, you have full knowledge of all things. He knows the fact of your suffering, but here, here's something that comforts my soul. He also knows the feeling of your suffering because he's been there himself. All this, this tribulation, that crushing pressure, the poverty, the slander, the satanic attack, Jesus suffered it all. 
He's been through it all himself. There, there isn't any sorrow or misery in your life that Jesus hasn't in some way himself tasted. So he, he knows the fact of it, but he also knows the feeling of it and what you're going through. He knows how you feel as you face sufferings. It's hard when someone distances you. It's, it's hard when a loved one rejects you. It's, it's heartbreaking when someone you care for betrays you. Jesus experienced all those things. And so when he looks at you, as it were, and says to you, I know, you can know that he knows and he knows. And this is something to remind people of. Do you, do you know the power? Do you know the power of looking a brother or sister in Jesus in the eye and saying with full faith and conviction, do you know the power of being able to look at them and say to them, Jesus knows. He knows all about it. And the comfort that can bring to the believer doesn't make it go away. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt anymore. It still does. Doesn't mean there still aren't uncertainties ahead. We can't see any further ahead than right now in some ways. But there's power in knowing that Jesus knows. That's what you tell them. Remind them that the Lord knows. You may wonder why. But the answer is, whatever his reason, it's not because he doesn't care. Because he's been there. It's not that he doesn't understand because he's been through it. He knows. How do you help a hurting believer? Give them an exalted view of Christ. Remind them that the Lord knows all about it. But then there's something else that Jesus says. There's, there's something else we're to do that's a bit of a different flavor, but it's, it's important. He tells them what they're to not do and what they are to do. Do you see that in verse 10? Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So there's hard times coming. It's hard already. There's even more hard times coming. But he's got something to tell them, doesn't he? He says, do not fear that. And then he says, the end of the verse, be faithful, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. How do you help a suffering, a suffering Christian? Give them an exalted view of Christ. Remind them that the Lord knows all about it. Now thirdly, equip them with the Lord's instructions. Equip them with the Lord's instructions. It's a, Jesus has got a prescription for them. Remember the church at Ephesus, he had a prescription for them to deal with their love problem. Now, here in Smyrna, and they're suffering, he's got a prescription for them. Some, some exhortations. There's something they're to not do and something they are to do. What they're to not do is to do not be afraid. He says, do not fear. Fear has a way sometimes, doesn't it, of coming in and taking over. Like being the dominant ruling power in our hearts. And, and I'll be honest with you, I scare pretty easy. I mean, when you talk about fear, I, I am someone who's subject to many fears. I'm not too proud to say it that at the age of 44, I'm still scared of the dark. And I know some of you think that's some of you can't even help but laugh at that, but the reality is it's true. I, I'm afraid, and I know, I know there's nothing that's there's nothing there in the dark, it's not there in the light, but how do you know? Because there's no lights on, maybe there is. I don't know. I scare you. I remember when I was a kid, 
I got invited to go go-karting, and I don't remember how I was. I was just a kid, and uh, that sounded, in theory, like an exciting adventure, but I don't do adventures. I'm not into thrill-seeking, even if it is a little cart going around the track, and I had to look excited because that's what men do, and as a little man, I got to look excited, but inside, I was terrified, and what's worse is we actually went to the go-kart track and actually got in line. My friend's parent paid for me to go. I'm committed now. Got to get the helmet on, and every step I took closer to the gate to be my turn. I got more and more scared to the point where it was my turn. They pointed at me into the cart. I couldn't do it. I totally chickened out. So humiliating. So I'm kind of over it, actually. It kind of brings it back right now, to be honest with you. But, but the reality is, is I read a verse like this. It says, do not fear. And I think to myself, that's easier said than done. Do not fear. How do you... How do you not fear? Like, I don't remember ever a time in my life when I made the decision to be afraid. Do you know what? I think I shall be afraid now. It doesn't happen. Like, it just happens. It just comes on me. And when it comes on me, it has a way of taking over. So how do you push it back? Well, remember where Jesus started. He didn't start with instructions, and that's instructive for us if we're to minister to others. We don't start with instructions. Where do we start? We start with Christ. The exalted view of Christ. Think where we've already been. He begins with the revelation of himself as the one who's the first and the last. He is, he has always been and he is over and above it all. We begin with Jesus and who he is. And, and then once we've, we've seen that, we are reminded that the Lord knows all about it. He's fully aware of what's going on, the facts and the feelings. Now, seeing Jesus and knowing that he knows, he's not in the dark about my situation, he's not confused, he gets it, he understands it, now we come to instructions. We don't start with the instructions, but we do come there. And as, as a person is persisting in, in an extended period of suffering and hardship, that's where sometimes these instructions have got to come in. And the first thing Jesus says is, don't be afraid. And how do I not be afraid? I go back to where I began, looking to Jesus. I've got to put my eyes on him. So we, we go to worship. We go to worship. We remind each other about who this Jesus is and where he's been. And because of where he's been, we'll never be. Jesus has saved us from the worst possible outcome a person could ever experience. He saved us from it. You'll never, you'll never taste it. it. Gives us tremendous victory in him. So we start there. That's how we, we don't be afraid. We, we remember that Jesus knows and he understands. And in his providence, if he's called me through this, if he's called me to this, knowing fully what's going on, then he will be with me. He'll give me the strength I need to get through it. There's instruction here to not be afraid. How do I not be afraid? Look to Jesus. Equip your loved one. Equip your brother and sister in the Lord with the Lord's instruction. Do not be afraid. Don't let fear take over. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. It is good and healthy to encourage each other to trust the Lord. And he says to be faithful. Did you see that at the end of verse 10? Be faithful unto death. Now that sounds scary. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now that sounds hopeful. But notice that phrase, be faithful. Here's my observation. When we go through difficulty and painful experiences, our flesh and the devil sometimes conspire together 
And we find ourselves giving ourselves permission to behave in ways that are not faithful to the Lord. It's hurting, it's painful. And so in my weakness, in my flesh, I feel like I therefore now have a right to be unfaithful to the Lord in some way. Maybe it's by indulging in an immoral or sinful distraction. Or maybe it's just plotting flat-out good old-fashioned revenge. Oh, yeah? You say that to me? I'll be waiting in the weeds. I'll be waiting in the weeds. I'll get this person. I'll get you back. Of course, we don't say that out loud. We don't bring that out in prayer at the church because it don't sound right. But it happens. You malign me, I'll get you. Wait till you see what I post tomorrow. Wait till you see what I'll say to this person about you behind your back. The call to be faithful is a call to be obedient to the Lord and to not be unfaithful. Plotting revenge, distancing myself from the Lord and from his people. Isn't it true that sometimes when we're going through the deepest waters, the last place we want to come is to church? I don't fully know why that is. It's just true. Maybe it's because we don't want to face people. Maybe it's because we know people are going to ask us how we're doing and we don't want to explain it. And sometimes when we're really under pressure, we can find ourselves even denying the Lord, maybe not even outrightly, but our behavior and actions. The call here is to be faithful to him. You say, well, how do I be faithful to him? The temptations are so real, so strong. Again, we go back to the portrait. Remember who Jesus is. Remember that he knows. But also... Look to this fourth thing. There's one more thing that kind of flows together. And it's the assurance. It's the promise that we see here. Notice that phrase, be faithful, verse 10. Be faithful unto death. You see that? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, the crown of life is a symbol of victory. In antiquity, the Olympian, the athlete, would be awarded a crown, the victor's crown, that, that crown of, of probably flowers or some kind of foliage would be awarded, would look beautiful on the day of victory. But over time, it would fade. That's why when Peter talks about the unfading crown of glory, his original readers would be like, oh yeah, because crowns fade. Trophies get tarnished, right? Or get broken. I got a trophy at my house. It's still been thrown out. There's a piece of it busted off, but it's mine, so I still have it. But this, this crown that we're going to, it's an unfading crown. It speaks of eternal life. It speaks of heaven. It speaks of victory in Jesus. He says, so be faithful to me, and I will give you the crown of life. So how do we, where do we find the strength to keep on being faithful when it's hard. Well, you find it in the promises that the Lord gives to us, the hope that we have that this, there is, there is going to be a happy ending. And that's the fourth thing. How do you help the suffering state? Well, you assure them of the Lord's promises. God's got promises for you. And his promises are there to be held on to. He's going to give you the crown of life. When you trust in Jesus, when you look away from yourself and trust in him, he promises you victory in him. Victory of eternal life, reward in heaven. Unlike any other earthly reward, this one will last in eternity. And then he says something else. In the end of verse 11, he talks about not being hurt by the second death. Did you see that? Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen up, listen up. But then... The one who conquers, remember, conquering isn't on your own power, it's trusting in Jesus, the conqueror. The one who conquers, notice, will not be hurt by the second death. You know, the Bible talks about 
two deaths. There's the first death that a person experiences when they die. And I, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but the truth is, is that's, that's common. This fallen world is filled with fallen people whose bodies are broken. And we die, it's physical death. But there's another death that the Bible talks about. The book of Revelation calls it second death. And second death is in reference to judgment from God. Eternal judgment. When I show up before a holy God without my sins forgiven in Jesus, I face a second death. And this death is hard to, probably hard to get our minds around it, but it's far more terrifying than the first death because it's an eternal one of eternal destruction and consequences of our sins. This is the worst of all possible outcomes to your life. And it's totally avoidable. Because this Jesus died on the cross and arose from the dead to save you from the second death. That even though we die, Jesus said, yet you will live when you trust in him. There's a little saying, maybe you've heard it, that I, I think it's helpful to get this principle. It goes like this. Like when you are, if you're born once, if you're born once, like physical birth, if you're born once, you'll die twice. Physical death and eternal death. If you're born once, you die twice. But if you're born twice, you'll die once. We talk about being born twice. Well, physically born, like when you came out of your mama. But then born twice is a rebirth, a new birth. Jesus talked about being born again. Speaking about what happens when you put your trust in him. You go from being spiritually dead to alive. And even though you may face the first death, when you're born twice, you'll never face second death. What about you? Born once? Born only once? Die twice. But born twice, you die once. The promise of dying once is a reminder to us that when a Christian is hurting, one of the most important ministries we can have for them is to remind them of the promises of God. In this text is the promise of eternal life. And there's many times, whether it's your own suffering right now or someone else you want to minister, there's many times when that is the appropriate reminder about the promise of eternal life in Jesus. Our ministry, an important ministry we have to each other, is reminding each other of the promises of God. So my assignment to you would be to Get some promises in your head and in your heart. Actually, I think a great little homework assignment for every Christian would be to do this. To think about some of the pains and sorrows you are experiencing right now or have experienced in your life. Because if you're experiencing it or you have experienced it, you either need it now or someone else in your life is going to need it at some point too. Think about what are some of the hurts and the sorrows and pains that we go through in this life. And then think this. Where, what, where is there a promise of God that would address that grief, that sorrow, that loss?
Okay, so I'm thinking about the sorrow and the suffering. What promise of God could specially apply to this? Now, this may take some time, and you may even want to ask some others, but I'll give you just some examples, okay? So I mentioned fear. I got a little bit of a fear thing going on. Don't judge me. It's real, and it's there. So what's my verse for fear? Well, I got a promise, okay? And it's how I deal with lots of my fears. It's Joshua 1.9, where God says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So as I face fear in my life, I got a promise that I got to hold on to. God, you said you'd be with me. You've told me to not be afraid, but to be strong and courageous, and that strength and courage comes from knowing that you're here and that you're near. So that's a promise. You got a verse maybe for fear? Maybe you can use mine. That's okay. I didn't write it. It's there for you too. How about, how about the pain of, of, of anger when somebody maligns you and you, there's that impulse. You want to get back at them. And there's a kind of, when you forgive someone, there is a sorrow there. There's a grief there because you're having to let go of that felt right you have to get back at them. So what, what do you do with that pain? Well, you go to a verse like Romans 12 and 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, there's a promise. It's not a promise you're likely to see on somebody's coffee cup. (laughs) Vengeance is mine, I will repay. But it is a promise, a promise of justice, where God would say to you, leave it with me, I will deal with her. I will deal with him. And I can minister peace to us, I can... That's power, power to let it go. Or how about doubt? Doubt's another one of my old friends. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall be accomplished that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God has promised some things, and they will happen. He will see to it. There's others. I'll give you one more. How about this one? Maybe your pain, your sorrow, or someone you love, it's being alone. And you feel alone. And feeling alone can be the weirdest thing because you can be surrounded by people but feel so alone. What you got for me, Jesus? These words. Matthew 28, 20. To you who are lonely, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end. Now there's a promise. The one who is the first and the last, the one who died and is to life, he's impressive. He says, I am with you always, even right now, even right here. Now think of the power of being able to commend to a loved one in Jesus that promise. Brother, sister, you feel alone today, and that's understandable. But what the Lord Jesus says to you is that you are not alone, but he is with you always So when you walk into that classroom, when you step into that workplace, when you go on back home into that marriage, when you resume trying to parent those kids, as you open up 
your bank account. He's with you. Always. How do you minister to a suffering Christian? Give them an exalted view of Christ. Start there. I highly recommend worship. Remind them that the Lord knows. Even though I don't fully understand, he does. Equip them with the Lord's instructions. We don't start there, but we get there. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. Assure them of the Lord's promise. He's got promises for you that you can hold on to that will give you strength to keep on going one step at a time. And by the way, every step you take is one step closer to seeing all these promises fulfilled and being fit for that crown. Now, don't pack up yet. Don't pack up. I'm going to pray, but I don't want you to pack up because I've said four things here. And my question for you is, of these four things, which of them lands on you today as most relevant and most timely? And I ask you that because we're going to pray. Just, just a minute here. I'm going to pray. But as you look at your own life and your own sufferings, or perhaps there's someone on your mind who's in your life, they're on your mind today, and you see the Lord has given you a platform and an opportunity to minister to them. Which of these four things do you think is most pertinent? Did you most need to hear today? Maybe it's the first one, an exalted view of Christ. Maybe you hear that, you're like, that's, that's exactly what I need. As I need to turn my eyes on Jesus. Or that's what this loved one needs. As I need to remind them about his greatness. We need, need to worship the Lord with them, or over them, or for them. Is it an exalted view of Christ? Maybe it's just a reminder, too, that the Lord knows. He knows all about it. Maybe it's instruction. Maybe there's a recognition. You know, look at my own life. I'm that person. I'm, I'm tempted. Maybe you're thinking, I'm tempted to sort of give myself license to be unfaithful because I, I somehow in my own mind feel like, I don't know, I have the right to because it's been so hard. No, I need that reminder to be faithful today. That's, that's a word for me. So maybe there's some prayer of repentance that will go on here today. Maybe it's the promises of the Lord. Man, I need to be reminded of the promises I have in God to encourage me to help me keep going. Which of these four things is most timely for you? Let's pray. And as I pray, we'll pray through each one. And where it gets to your point of view, you just say, amen, Lord. Yes, what he's saying. Let's pray.